Good morning, good morning. Okay, we're going to jump right in. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. Thank you for being here on Epiphany Sunday. This morning, we're going to have an epiphany. Eureka! The lights come on. This morning, I want to talk to you about the steadfast light. The steadfast light. I'm going to read to you from a slightly different Bible translation of John chapter 1. Okay, so if you don't have your Bibles, it might help to just listen along and even close your eyes because this passage is not actually the beginning of the Gospel of John alone. It's also the beginning of your Bible. Did you know that? What is described in John 1 precedes what happens in Genesis. What is described in John 1 tells the story of the uncreated Christ, fully God, who became fully man and dwelt among us. And on Epiphany Sunday, we celebrate the revelation that Jesus Christ is God. So it might feel a little bit like teaching, but I'm actually trying to preach to you today because if there's one thing I'm obsessed with, it's Jesus. I really am convinced of less and less, but more and more, Jesus is becoming my one and only fascination and the main expression of my faith. So let's read this together. In the origin, there was the Logos. And the Logos was present with God, and the Logos was God. This one was present with God in the origin. All things came to be through him, and without him came not to be a single thing that has come to be. In him was life, and this life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not conquer it. There came a man sent by God whose name was John. This man came in witness that he might testify of the light, so that through him all might have faith, but only that he might testify about the light, he was not that light. It was the true light which illuminates everyone that was coming into the cosmos. He was in the cosmos, and and through him the cosmos came to be, though the cosmos did not recognize him." He came to those things that were his own, and they who were his own did not accept him. But as many as did accept him, to them he gave them the power to become God's children, to those having faith in his name, those born not from blood nor from man's desire, but of God. And the Logos became flesh and pitched a tent among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the Father's only one, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him and has cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who is coming after me has surpassed me, for he was born before me. For we have all received from his fullness and grace upon grace. Because the law was given through Moses, the grace and the truth came through Jesus Christ the anointed. No one has ever seen God, the one who is uniquely God, who is in the Father's breast, that one has declared him. Okay, this is pretty heavy stuff. And it's written in a time where there was a lot of debate even in the church and within the followers of Christ around the nature of Jesus and his divinity. And so John the Beloved, 
John the disciple who, who, who leaned against Christ during the Last Supper, the final Passover meal. John the Beloved is now an old man, and he's writing this gospel to reveal the exclusivity of the divinity of Jesus. That Jesus was there with God before the beginning as the logos of God. And that he is the unique and full revelation of God's divinity. But he's also the full expression of God's humanity. And so there's this big cosmic imagery. God, existing before even the cosmos was created, came and pitched a tent in our neighborhood. It almost sounds silly to say. This is what we celebrate on Epiphany Sunday. The aha moment when the lights come on. And you see Christ for who he is. You see Jesus of Nazareth as the one and only begotten son of God. It happened for me when I was three years old. And I I know it happened because I remember it. It's one of my earliest memories. In the church I grew up in in Penticton, we were obsessed with drama. So we would do all these big productions and plays and skits. And not only that, but the stage had a huge loft above it. And in that loft was this attic room. And it was obviously the coolest room in the church. And I, as a pastor's kid, had the keys to the kingdom. And so I would run around and we'd play and sometimes it'd be dark. And The only light down there would be the light from the exit signs, right? The red exit signs. And otherwise, it was pitch black in the basement. That was fun. But if we were really lucky, we had the chance to go up into this attic room, which you could only access by ladder, okay? Now, it was a Wednesday night. And Wednesday night was like family kind of Bible study night. Like we would, instead of having a service, it was like evening Sunday school and parents would go to their own classes. Sometimes it'd be on like marriage and conflict resolution or finances or a devotional class. And then the kids would go to their own classes as well. And in our age group, myself and my friend Danny Wilton were the only kids to show up in our age group. And our teacher said, well, because it's just the two of you, we'll just have fun together. She was this sweet old lady and she played this weird auto harp thing. It looked like a, it looked like a typewriter that played music. And uh, she's like, we'll just, we'll just talk about the Lord and we'll maybe tell a story. Where would you guys like to have your kids' church? And both Danny and I looked at each other. We knew right away where we were going to have kids' church. We wanted to be up in that attic. So we had her, this old lady, I don't know how old she was, 70, 68? She was probably 35. Anyway, <laughs> We had her climb this ladder, and we climbed up this ladder, and up there, there was the flanograph, okay? Now, if you didn't grow up in church, you don't understand how sacred the flanograph was. The flanograph was a big white sheet of flannel, and usually it had a backdrop of like some green rolling hills. It's kind of like your Windows 98 desktop. It had one tree. This stood for both like the Garden of Eden and like the conquest of Joshua, and it was like where Jesus told the Beatitudes. Basically, it was every scene in the Bible was this green rolling hill and this oak tree and then they would take these cutouts of flannel and they'd stick them on and they'd just stand there right and then if you wanted Jesus to move you'd have to wiggle them right and this was all we had for kids church this was how we told these stories okay so of course she pulls up the flanograph and she tells us the story of Adam and Eve and how they sinned and how they brought darkness into the world and 
I can't go into more detail than this, than that the feeling I had was a feeling of intense pain and sadness. I felt so bad that the world was so wrong. And then she said to us, but then Jesus came and boom, she puts up the cross, which was pretty violent imagery for a three-year-old, not going to lie. But she put the cross up and she said, but God made a way. God came in Jesus to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven. She said, Danny, Connor, would you like to be forgiven? Of, of everything that you've done and everything that you will do. Would you like to be right with God? And of course, you know, I was so sinful because I had disobeyed my mom and I had talked back to my dad. I don't know. I don't even know if I was convicted about anything I had done. I just knew in that moment when I saw the cross on this flannel board, I knew that God had taken the initiative to make the world right. And the sense of hope I got from that, I said, yes. So she led us in the sinner's prayer. And immediately, I felt different. That was like basically the end of our time together, right? And I don't even know if she thought what we were doing was legitimate. But I came down the attic, and I came onto the front of the platform, and I looked out at the empty sanctuary in the dark, only lit up by the exit signs, and I felt like I was alive. I felt like light was shining out of me. And I promise you, for as long as I live, I will not forget this moment. This moment of feeling like I understood the truth and I saw the world the way it really was. And I honestly feel like I've been running on the fumes of that moment for the past 27 years. Or 20, how old am I now? <laughs> I'm 32. So the past 29 years, for those of you who are doing the math. I want to walk through this because it feels really theological and big. But when we walk through it, we actually find out that this is really practical for us to understand who Jesus is and to understand the epiphany of his full humanity and his full divinity. <coughs> Pardon me. And I will try to be sensitive to the time because I know kids are not necessarily theological scholars and they don't necessarily have that patience for Epiphany Sunday. Here we go. In the beginning was the Logos. In your Bible, it probably says in the beginning was the word, right? But the word word is a pretty boring word. Like the word word is pretty broad. It's pretty general. In the Greek, the word for word is the word logos. But the word logos doesn't just mean word. The word logos is richer and more complex than that. When you hear the Greek word logos, what that actually means is the logic, the essence, the essential nature the full expression of a person or a thing or an idea. So when the Bible says, in the beginning was the logos of God, what John is saying to us is, in the beginning, God's full expression was within himself. God's logic, his essence, his way of being. And we see hints and clues of this throughout the Old Testament. Right In the book of Exodus, Moses is leading the children of Israel and they see miracle after miracle. They get manna every morning for breakfast. They're led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And then the Bible says that the children of Israel knew God's acts, but Moses knew his ways, knew his essence, understood his nature, his character. I'll put it to you in another example. If I'm separated from my wife in the mall, okay? 
Has this ever happened to you? You get separated from your wife in the mall, and then you're trying to track her down, and you're like, where is she? And you have no idea where to go or what to look for. Imagine this. I see her from a distance, and I watch her slap somebody. Okay? Imagine you watch your spouse from a distance slap somebody. What goes through your mind is the logos of them, the logic of them. And you find yourself immediately telling yourself a story. It's not like you'd watch your spouse slap someone and be like, well, I guess they're really violent by nature. <laughs> Learn my lesson. I thought they were loving and compassionate. Turns out whenever I'm not looking, they're beating up on people. No. If I were to see my wife slap somebody, immediately I'd go, I understand her essence and her nature. So something just happened. And most likely it was something way worse than what she did. Or maybe I misunderstood the situation. Or maybe this is some sort of prank show. I have no idea. But I know her essence. I know her nature. I know her character. I know her ways. So John is saying that the very essence of God was contained within him as his eternal immutable quality. And this essence was not hidden. But rather it was expressed. It was like light shining, emanating like the light that shines from the sun. It was expressed from God out of unknowability into knowability. What does this mean? For example, our Muslim friends serve a God that they believe is completely and fully unknowable. And logically, there is some truth to this because God, by nature of being God, is always going to be God, right? And we're going to be created, made, human, frail, fragile beings. And so they would consider it sacrilege that God could be known in his essential characteristics aside from Muhammad is prophet and the Holy Quran. But we as Christians proclaim that God is not unknowable, that God can be known. And so this logic expresses itself, its style, its substance, its essential nature, God can be understood. I'm just going to highlight a few things. In him was life, and this life was the light of men. All life, all true life comes from God. Nothing exists that was made that is alive that does not find its origin in God. Every person that is truly alive is found in Christ. See, this is important because what John is trying to do is he's trying to say that the very life that's within us and the life that's all around us, that life is part of this logic, this logos of God that is being revealed, that is shining across the universe. What does this mean? It means that when you're in the company of friends, it doesn't matter what faith they profess. When they're laughing to the point where they can barely breathe because something is so funny and they're just wrapped up in a spirit of togetherness and compassion, that is the spirit of Christ that is animating that moment of life. This light, sorry, this life is the light of men. Everywhere you see life, you see Christ present. Everywhere. Unequivocally, without exception. And the more full the life, the more real the presence of Christ. I've told you this many times before, but I'm obsessed with this idea, so I'm going to tell it to you again. The ancient rabbis had two opinions about the name of God, Yahweh. 
the name Yahweh is made up of four, I think it's made up of four Hebrew semi-consonants. There was two camps. One camp said, you can't pronounce the name Yahweh because it's too holy to say. God is too far away. He cannot be known. He cannot be understood. Therefore, we can't even say his name. So we'll come up with a name that means the name. Right. So we're not even saying the name, which is the name. The other camp said, what if the sound of these four semi-consonants is the sound of humans breathing? What if the reason why you can't say the name of God is not because he's too holy, but because the only way to pronounce his name correctly is to just breathe in and out. You know what the word for spirit is in the Old Testament? The Hebrew word for spirit is pneuma, the breath. When someone dies in the Old Testament, it says his spirit, his breath left him. You don't live very long if you stop breathing. There's this idea that the divine is actually not unknowable, but that through the whole process of the Old Testament and leading unto the new, God was continuously revealing himself, his logic, his essence, his essential character. And this light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not conquer it. Some church translations say, the darkness did not comprehend it. I like the word conquer better. Because you'll know if you've lived on the planet for any longer than 20 minutes, you'll know that the darkness feels like it is alive. Scientifically speaking, darkness is the absence of light. The problem is, in ignorance, when we turn away from the light, we use our creative capacity as made in the image and likeness of God to create perversions that never existed in God's good creation. I liken it to a very dark, dark version of the movie Peter Pan. Have you seen the movie Peter Pan? When Peter Pan first shows up in Wendy's room, he's only there because he's trying to catch his shadow. Because his shadow has a mind of its own. Sometimes it feels like the shadows have a mind of their own. Sometimes it feels like life is going wrong and it feels like ignorant people are winning and it feels like our enemies are in power and it feels like everyone who cares can't be heard and everyone who wants to hurt is the loudest voice. And I'm here to let you know the darkness doesn't conquer. Even though it feels, even though it feels sometimes like the darkness is alive, even though it feels like you're up against it and you don't know whether or not you're going to make it, even if you don't have hope, the darkness will not conquer. Because it denies the essential nature of what the light is. And yes, sometimes in people's ignorance, in their brokenness, they choose the darkness. Jesus says in John, some loved darkness more than light. And that's a horrible, horrible tragedy. But even when light is being crucified on a cross, he says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The darkness can only dwell in the ignorance of our lack of imagination and understanding that Jesus is the revelation of God. We killed him because we thought we were doing God a favor. We didn't realize we were killing the very God we were trying to serve. Come on. John says, it was the true light which illuminates everyone. Everyone is already subject to the light of Christ. Everyone is already subject to the light of Christ. What Christ has done was not selectively applied to those who were ready to receive him. What Christ has done applies to everyone 
and only some people have had their faces unveiled. I was going to take the time to go there this morning. I'm just going to bring it up now. 2 Corinthians 4 explains this principle even more clearly. Paul jumps off of John 1 and John 3, and Paul explains to us in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, I would encourage you to go there another time. I really feel like God has much for us in that passage for this season. But Paul basically says that we are the ones with unveiled faces. It's like the whole world is walking around with a blindfold on. And then the light starts shining. And some of us go, (laughs) have you ever been to the beach and tried to fall asleep? Anyone? Has anyone ever been to the beach and tried to fall asleep? Okay. When you're laying at the beach trying to fall asleep, one of the most annoying things in the world is how hot and bright and oppressive the sun is when you close your eyes. You close your eyes and it's like red, almost yellow. And you're like, what do I do with my face? You, you, you can't bury your head in the sand. Some people turn on their, on their tummies, right, and lay their head in the, in the blankets. But the sun's light is still there even though your eyes are closed. C.S. Lewis says, I can no no more deny that God exists than I can deny that the sun is shining even though I am blind. The thing is, we have been veiled, but through Christ, the veil is taken away. And then Paul says, it's like Moses who comes down off the mountain and his face is shining. The crazy thing is when we see this light, it radiates not just onto us, but through us. Some of us, we go away for two weeks to avoid the winter. When we come back and everyone goes, oh, you're glowing. You look so radiant. Did you get some sun? No, I just went to the tanning bed. Right? But that's the nature of light is it doesn't just shine upon us, but it actually radiates through us. The glory of God was revealed to Moses and his face shone like a light bulb. The Israelites said, you've got to put a veil over that thing because it's too bright for us. thing is those that do not look upon the glory of God, those that do not see the truth of his glory are like those who have a veil over their face. But in Christ, Paul says, the veil is taken away. What does that mean? It means when you see Jesus, you recognize that his light has always been shining, but instead of turning away from his light, you turn towards it. Another, another easy metaphor. How many of you have ever been sleeping and someone turns the lights on? And you're like, this is the worst thing that has ever happened to me in my entire existence. Like, I was trying to sleep the other morning, and Leisha turned the bathroom light on, and I was like, turn that godforsaken light off right now, woman. I didn't say that, but that's what I felt in my spirit. I had to repent. The thing is, when the light comes on, you have a choice to make. But it doesn't mean that the light is only on for those that made the right choice. It was the true light that was coming into the cosmos. He was coming into the cosmos, and the cosmos did not recognize him. This means that the world was in him, and then he entered into the world, and the world did not recognize that the life within them became the light upon them. Again, you're with your friends, and suddenly this raucous laughter takes over, and it bubbles up from within you, And it overwhelms you and your relationships. And you're like, this is just the best. That is Christ. Whether or not you recognize it is irrelevant to the reality 
which is that the kingdom of heaven is righteousness, peace, and joy. Right relationships, peaceful conduct, and overwhelming joy. So whenever you have overwhelming joy, you are experiencing the light of Christ. Paul, John says, Jesus made the cosmos. Everything you will, you will ever see, everything you will ever touch, every grain of sand on the shore, it was somehow within him. And he flipped it inside out. He came as a human being, a baby. Somehow in the baby in the manger, the entire universe existed. And then in this mystery, the world did not comprehend him. They didn't realize what they were dealing with. And you know what happens? Is that people who have the light shining on them don't even realize that they're in the light. They don't realize that every moment of laughter, every moment of peace, every relationship where there is trust and there is compassion, these are manifestations of Christ. But even though they don't realize the truth, the truth is still within them. But as many as did receive him, he gave them the right to become children by the will of God. Another translation I love says, God endorses the fact that they are his offspring and sanctions their sonship. When we recognize this light, we discover that it's not only shining upon us, but that it's already within us. And then we become born again. Not by the will of man, but by the will of God from above. Another way of saying born again in the original language would be born from the top. Have you ever been with a, with a conductor or maybe a jazz quartet and the conductor will say, let's take it again from the top. When you're born again, you don't get a second chance. You actually go back to the first chance. Being born again is not fixing your mistakes. It's actually bringing you back to your original design. Being born again is not about God fixing, like, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Your wretchedness is only a part of the darkness of your ignorance. The truth of reality is found in Christ long before the world began. Your origin was found in Christ. When you wake up to that fact, you realize the light shining upon me is also the light within me. And what does it do? It endorses your sonship. God did not adopt you after the devil made you. You were not made by the devil. You were made by God. You were born in his image and likeness. And when you were born again, you become aware of the truth that I was always found in God, that I was always his design. You know why this matters? This matters because my wife works in the NICU and there are always babies born in the NICU that are not wanted by their biological parents. And you know what I can say with full assurance? They are wanted. They are known. They're made in God's image and likeness. And at the moment of their conception to the moment of their birth, they were loved and accepted by God the whole time. Their origin was found in Him. Long before the world got to get our their, the world got to get the world's hands on us, long before that, God said, You are mine. You're my child and I love you. And that's the truth. Yeah, that's the truth. 
John says, we have all received of his fullness and grace upon grace. Grace is like my favorite thing in the universe. Wherever she is. Grace, you're named after my favorite thing in the whole universe. Did you know that? I just love you so much. It says, of his fullness we've all received, and grace upon grace. A lot, of, a lot of churches will say grace is unmerited favor. I think it's bigger than that. I think grace is the way love flows through the universe. Grace is the way love flows through the universe. John says, even though they didn't know him, even though they didn't realize that their origin was in him, those who received this light and recognized their origin was in him, those were the ones who recognized that they already had its fullness. And in recognizing they already had his fullness, it was grace upon grace. The common grace of just getting to be alive, just getting to enjoy the world, and then the grace upon the grace which is that you know that you know that you know that you're loved, that you belong, that you're part of a family. I actually don't care how broken your home is. I don't care how messed up your parents were. I don't care how set back you are or how much or how little you have in your bank account. You are actually born in God and you deserve to enjoy the love and the grace of belonging to his family. No problem, no setback, no brokenness can conquer the light that is in you. And the light that is in you is grace upon grace upon grace. You are loved. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to read the right scriptures. You don't have to pray the right prayers. Your origin is found in God. And the grace that comes upon you, the love that flows through you, comes when you recognize that this light, this light that is shining is your belonging in God's family. John says, the grace and the truth came through Jesus. The fullness of grace and the fullness of truth were expressed through the life of Jesus of Nazareth. A lot of times when I used to read that, I used to think the truth was like, Jesus taught us true morality on how to live. I think that's true. But that's not what John is saying. John is saying that Jesus is truth. He is the foundation of reality itself. The reason why I'm preaching this to you with great boldness is it has to be the most important thing at the expense of pretty much everything else. That in Jesus, we find the Christ, the anointed one, the begotten son of God, the eternal word, the logos made flesh, and we receive him as the life that defines our life. This is the light that resonates upon us and out of us. This is the epiphany that makes us wake up and go, aha, I'm found in God. Not because I prayed the sinner's prayer, although that helps, but because when I recognize that God is my origin, I look around me in the mall or the coffee shop or at a family reunion, and I see a whole bunch of other people who find their origin in the light, who were made in the image and likeness of God. And I can stand almost anywhere and I can see the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ being revealed through us because God has made his home among us. He's pitched a tent in our community. Finally, John says, no one has seen God at any time. But the one begotten Son of the Father has revealed him. Yep. Now, 
We've talked about how God is, how Jesus is God, right? He's the logic, the essence of God made flesh. But again, he's made fully flesh. Like he's not just putting on a human suit temporarily. Like God's like, oh yeah, Jesus, they're really struggling. So if you could just put on this human suit for like 20 minutes and go down there and just show them that it's not so bad, then maybe they'll get their act together. That's not what this is. How many of you have seen the movie Avatar, right? The blue alien dudes with the long tails that worship a tree or whatever. Anyone? It was like the biggest movie of all time. Someone's seen it. Okay, in the movie Avatar, it's called Avatar because humans that want to talk to these aliens, they go in this tank thing and then they like, they get an alien body just temporarily. And then whenever they want, they unplug and the, the alien body falls over and then they wake up and they're humans again. That's not what God did. God did not become human temporarily for a trial run. Jesus is not the avatar of God. Jesus is the begotten Son of God, the Word made flesh forever. Again, C.S. Lewis, he says, like, you know, in order to understand this, it would be like saying, I love my dog, but do I love my dog so much that I'd be willing to become a dog for eternity? God is an order of being that we cannot comprehend or understand. And he becomes flesh forever. He unites himself with humanity forever. This is the grounding of our reality. This is the epiphany that we have. This is what we're walking around knowing. That everybody else is veiled to and blinded to. And because they're blind, John says, no one has seen God at any time. What you now know about God... That he's fully divine in Jesus Christ. And that he's fully human in Jesus Christ. That he's the fullness of God and man in one person. What you now know is something that no one has ever known. Really? No one has ever known? What about Moses? What about Elisha and Elijah? What about Abraham? No one has seen God at any time? That's what John is saying. John is saying that compared to the light of Christ, compared to this sunlight that is now shining upon us, all these other revelations of God are mere faint stars in far off galaxies. So for example, if you're reading your Bible and God says, leave none of them alive, kill every single one of them, bash their children's head against the rocks. I would say to you what John said to you. No one has seen God at any time. Come on. But the one begotten Son of the Father has revealed him. Would Jesus tell me or you to bash babies' heads against the rocks? No. This is a very simple test. <laughs> Thank you for passing. Psalm chapter 5, David says, You hate all workers of iniquity. Jesus says in John 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Who's right about God? David or Jesus? Jesus. The entire Bible is there for our edification, exhortation, rebuke, and comfort. I believe that. But I don't put David's words on the same level as Jesus' words. Because Jesus is the revelation of what God is like. Jesus is the logic of God made flesh. So I have to read my Bible holding Jesus' hand. Jesus is my tour guide to everything. Because he's the reality of everything. 
not just my tour guide to the scriptures. He's my tour guide to life in the spirit in the world. So like, for example, Paul goes to the Greeks and they're all worshiping these different gods. And Paul doesn't go, you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong and you're an idiot and you're stupid. He doesn't do that. He goes to the one God in their temple who has no name. They've got like 46 gods and there's one that they're like, well, we still feel like there's one out there that we don't know. He's veiled to us, so we're just going to put this blank God, and it's like, to the unknown God. Paul goes, aha! Epiphany! I know that God, and I'm about to introduce you to him. See, Jesus is our guide through life. (laughs) We have to grasp Jesus' humanity and his divinity. We have to understand that the fullness of God was revealed to all humankind exclusively in Jesus. I'm telling you that what Jesus is and what he has done applies to everyone, but that he actually was a person who lived and died and rose again. You have to believe that the Christ has done his work for all of humanity, but you also have to believe that Jesus, the man, was God. He lived and died and rose again in the flesh. This is what it means to be Christian. Here's why. If you only focus on the universality of Christ, if you only focus on the universality and not the particularity of Christ, what do I mean by the the universality and the particularity? I mean that God is everywhere, with everyone, and he revealed himself exclusively through Jesus. That feels like a contradiction, but it's not. If you forget the universality of Christ, you become religious and Christ loses his humanity. Well, the only sons and daughters of God are those who have been born again. I'm part of the family of God. You're a reprobate who's going to hell. So thank God I don't have to deal with you for much longer. (laughs) Literally, Christians are sometimes the worst. The religious spirit can infect anyone who forgets the universality of Christ. Right now, there's a Muslim family eating and laughing together, and Christ is in their midst. And I'm going to trust that Christ will lead them to the knowledge of the light. And if I get a chance to introduce them to him, great. But I have to remember the universality of Christ. He is everywhere, and yet he is with me, and yet he is revealed through Jesus. And if I forget the particularity of Christ, then I become pantheistic. And the beauty of the man Jesus and what he reveals through his life becomes just a vague spiritual principle. And this is how a whole bunch of amazing people lose sight of Jesus and they get caught up with this idea that Jesus was just a good teacher and everything is okay and there are no boundaries and we're just going to do this, that, and the other thing. And then Jesus no longer holds their hand and leads them through life and it just becomes a big wash. I want you to know that there is immense value in knowing Christ. I want you to know that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. I want you to know that what we proclaim is Christ crucified and rose again, not in history, but in you and I. 
I want you to know that the light that's shining through us is the revelation that God has come and dwelled in our midst and that he is both the full logic and essence of God and he is also the fullness of our humanity. And I don't want you to forget this because honestly, I've found that too many people drive into one of two ditches. They either make Jesus so divine that he's no longer human, and they start writing rules and regulations and exclusions, and they make their club smaller and smaller and smaller, and they become more and more comfortable with judging more and more people. And you know how pervasive it is? It's so pervasive that so-called Christian politicians will get up after killing someone and say, God is on our side. And I'm here to tell you that is antichrist in nature. But I'm also here to tell you that it's antichrist in nature to simply make God revealed in Christ one of the pantheon of spiritual ideas that you can just let pass over you. That unless you hold to the humanity of Christ revealed in the person of Jesus, then you will become derailed by another insidious danger. Which is that not every spirit is a Holy Spirit. And not every spiritual practice is healthy. And not every person who says, Lord, Lord, enters the kingdom. What I'm trying to say is that when we hold to the humanity of Christ, we realize that God did not just reveal himself through some mysterious principle. He didn't just reveal himself through some mystical practice. He revealed himself through a person who in his humanity contains the essence of you and I. So let me just throw out some ideas to you. Like, for example, Paul, Paul had to deal with one. He said, some of you are upset about eating meat sacrificed to idols because you think it's, like, demon-saturated. And then some of you are cool with it. So hold Jesus by the hand and walk through life and discern for yourself whether or not you can eat meat sacrificed to demons or not. Because for some of you, it's going to violate your conscience. And for some of you, you're going to realize that is going to compromise me holding to Jesus as the image and likeness of God. And then for some of you, you're going to be like, you know what? I can do this. My conscience is clean. Okay. Some of you are wondering about yoga. Is yoga good or bad? Some of you are wondering about those salt lamps that turn orange. I have no idea what they even do. I want to like rub them on my pasta, right? Get it nice and salty. The more we hold to the universality of Christ, the more we can love and believe that God is everywhere with everyone. The more we hold to the particularity of Jesus, the more we know that the man, the person of Christ is the answer. And we're not sidetracked by a bunch of wishy-washy spirituality because we've met him. He has a name. His name is Jesus. And this answer is good news. It's good news because when we see life in other people, we go, oh, you know what? I can describe for you what that is. I can give you language for that. And when we see brokenness in people, we also have an answer for that too. Because in Jesus' humanity, he died and rose again on behalf of us all. His judgment brought everyone into himself. You can say to the addict, you can say to the broken home, you can say, your God is coming to save you. Because in Christ, hidden in Christ, is the miracle you need. Not in my crazy spirituality, not in my healing hands. 
Some Christians make it all about like, you know, it's like the emperor at the end of Return of the Jedi. You know, it's like, I'm the spiritual one and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix you. You know what? It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Christ. We know his name. The veil has come off. We've had an epiphany. So let's hold to our epiphany. Let's hold to this steadfast light because it's always shining. Every person who's breathing knows Christ in a hidden way. Every person who's breathing, even though they got a veil on, they already know that there's a light shining upon them and within them. And we are the ones who have woken up. We're the ones who've taken the blindfold off. And we know his name. His name is Jesus. Jesus.